with you, I should say. We're, we're playing uh, rotate the pastoral staff through the various parts of the continent this month. Uh, so we were away for uh, last week down in Fresno on a mission team and training and working with the students that we'll be bringing up here uh, for our summer camp. So we had a great weekend with them, getting to know their families, uh, and they're so excited to come, and we're going to host them. So we'll be looking to you for uh, building out some of the students that are coming up in that first weekend, uh, first week rather, of July. And then week before that, I was away on a holiday weekend, so it's great to be back uh, here with you uh, this morning. So when we travel, one of the things that we rely on a a little bit more heavily is text messaging because uh, it's a little bit cheaper, like when you're in the States and your cell phone plan is not that great of a cell phone plan. Uh, It's a lot cheaper to kind of text and and let people know what's going on, and it's quicker. Uh, But texting has its downsides. I don't know if you found this at all, but uh, the the very medium itself has some built-in weaknesses. So uh, I don't know if you've received, how many of you have ever received a text message that you cannot decipher no matter how hard you try? (laughs) And yeah, (laughs) your wife sends them to you? In Thai, okay, that's fair. It's a different language, though, so that's, that's off the table. But, but uh, I was with uh, the group of pastors that get together weekly for prayer, and we were down in Langley City this week praying, and uh, Pastor Dave McTaggart, who's a part of the leadership team of that group, he says, hey, Brad, does your wife text? I said, yeah, she's, you know, she's got an iPhone. She's got some texty friends, so yeah, she's, she texts, and she's like, yeah, but can you understand the stuff that she texts you? And so yeah, no, she's, you know, there's an autocorrect, built in and the spell check, which sometimes thinks it knows what you're going to say, but, you know, it's not what you want to say. Uh, but yeah, you know, she, her texts make perfect sense to me. So he hands me his phone and says, can you decipher this for me? And his text begins with a question mark and is a randomized series of consonants, like one consonant per line, and then just starts going and going and going. There's no word that it makes. There's nothing. And I said, well, I think, you know, she may have like butt texted you. Like bum dialing. This is a totally, you can't randomize, you can't make this stuff up. This text, it doesn't mean anything, Dave, so don't, don't worry about it at all. Uh, and, you know, I, there was another text that I got from somebody, and because it had, no, it had no context, it didn't make any sense to me. It was Aiden. Aiden sent me a text, but I didn't know it was Aiden because I don't have his number that he was texting me from stored on my phone. So it says, re long shirts, okay hoodies, question mark? And I was like, what is he talking about? Well, we had been talking about under the same sun and bringing things for Tanzania, so he just wanted to know if hoodies were okay. But I, it was like days after we talked about it, and I couldn't remember. I didn't know who it was from. I was like, who's texting me? What is this going on? He's like, it's Aiden. Remember we talked about this? I'm like, oh, right. So, I mean, I'm getting a little better at deciphering. But um, no matter how hard I try, I have not been able to teach my parents to text effectively. They, they just get random, like, letters and numbers, and things don't make any sense at all. Uh, and so things get split up into different messages, come in at different times, so they have absolutely no context whatsoever. And we're working. We're working with him, but um, I think my dad is the worst offender in this. He sent me a text on Wednesday going, is 5% okay? I'm like, I don't even know what the question is. <laughs> the, <laughs> therefore, I can't give you the answer to that question whatsoever. But uh, sometimes this uh, little text message can, can be humorous as well. 
This is a text message where perhaps the content and the context maybe are a little bit clearer, but uh, the recipient hears it in a bit of a different way. So the recipient says, uh, dude, me and Nick are about to go to a Giants game. Box seats want to go. Nick and I, dot, dot, dot. What? Question mark. It's Nick and I. Me and Nick is not proper grammar, dude. You're right. It is Nick and I because you are no longer invited. <laughs> so you've got to be careful when you're texting. You may uh, get yourself uninvited from things. But text messages are like that. They can be a little bit tricky because either the content is unclear or the context is missing. And sometimes we think we know what's being said or we think we, we think we might understand the message behind it. But in reality, the context might be quite different from our own applications and understandings. But this experience in text messaging is not limited uniquely to our cell phones. It actually happens sometimes when we come to the biblical text as well, doesn't it? Where you read something and you think, I don't understand this. There must be something else that I'm missing here. Either I don't understand the question that's being asked or addressed, or I don't understand the cultural context that it was written to. There must be something going on here. And this morning, we're going to look at what is perhaps one of the most misunderstood and challenging sections of the New Testament. And we're going to try and discern together the context of it and the content and how they've become distorted and created a lot of confusion and even abuse of this text. And so in order for us to take any steps forward with the text that we're working with, I'm going to suggest that we have to take three steps back and try and get a handle on several different contexts. We'll step back and analyze some cultural biases and blind spots that we have, and we want to allow God's Word to challenge us uh, towards radical obedience today. So let's pray as we look into God's Word this morning. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is truth, that it teaches us how to live, that it orients our lives and our thinking in ways that transcend our culture, in ways that transcend our own personal preferences sometimes, and that push into those areas of our lives to challenge us and to grow as closer disciples and followers of Jesus. God, we also come to you with humility this morning uh, saying that we, we desire and ask that your word would teach us. We come with humility saying we desire your spirit to speak to us this morning and we want to walk in obedience both as individuals and also as a church family and community. And so God, would you teach us from your word this morning. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. And Well, at Jericho Ridge we have been exploring a series called Holy matrimony this spring. And what we've been doing is we've been attempting to build uh, an architecture for relationships, particularly marital relationships and healthy marriages. And we've been going about it not by kind of um, the usual methodology, and that is here's three neat little tidy tips for you to better communication in your relationship. We've been looking at and studying the scriptures to see, does God have a, a design or an architecture for marriage, and if so, what does that look like? And so we've rooted ourselves in a text in Ephesians chapter 5, 
with some helpful excursions into passages like last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Pastor Keith lifted up the value that the Bible places and that we as a community place on singleness. And so I'm not going to repeat all of the disclaimers that uh, we've placed on the series already. You can go back and listen to those from our online uh, message archives on the website. But I will add one that is particular and that's specific to this week's text in Ephesians chapter 5. And that is a disclaimer that this text in Ephesians 5 that we're going to read is an idealized picture for us. So it's aspirational, aspirational in nature. But not all relationships that you and I know fit this architecture. And we'll see this in a few minutes. And so in order for what we're going to talk about today to get traction, it has to live within a certain context. So there'll be a lot of exceptions that will come into your mind and say, yeah, yeah, but what if my spouse does this or is this or is not this? or What about this? Or what about that? And those are all valid conversations. But this is describing an ideal for us that we want to try and orient and work our way towards. And so if you have your Bibles with you or you have it on your handheld device, take them out. And if you have your Momentum Journal, the notes page this morning is on page 32. And I'm going to read the text. And you'll likely see immediately why the title of this message is the S word. There are two S words that we're attacking together and discussing in our series on holy matrimony. Uh, some of you may have thought that last week's was one of the S words. It was not, singleness. But uh, the word that comes up in the text in Ephesians 5 this morning is certainly one of them. And then two weeks from today, we'll be addressing the theme of sexuality. And so that's the second S word. But the first one is the word submission. And I'm going to read the text and you'll see why a person could look at this like a disembodied text message and say, what? So look with me at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 to 27. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. And further, the text says, submit it to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And for a husband is a head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of his body, the church. And as the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husband in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. And he did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Indeed, she will be holy and without fault. And the text continues on from there. The title of this message is the S word because the word submit, which shows up four times in these short verses, is a loaded concept. It's a loaded word for us now. It was a loaded concept for its original hearers. And it's so countercultural to the intuitions and the ethos of our broader culture that we have to understand and work a little bit more to think about what it means. And so I want to walk us through this passage of Scripture carefully and with humility, and hopefully we can hear together with clarity what God is saying to each of us. The first thing that you notice in verse 21 is profoundly unhelpful, perhaps. 
And that is the NIV, if you have that translation, begins a new paragraph in verse 21. The new living which I read from hints this is not the case, but uh, begins verse 21 with saying the phrase, and further, which should be a clue for us that this idea of submission to one another out of reverence for Christ is connected back to something that he was talking about earlier in the passage. But still, I don't know if your Bible does this, but my Bible chucks a heading in there which makes it feel like it's disconnected from what's happening earlier, even though the phrase says, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we have to begin by taking our first step back and asking ourselves, okay, this came to the original listeners, the original hearers, as a letter, and it wasn't a part of a new paragraph. So what were they reading when they read this? So we have to, how did they understand how they read this in the first century? Because one of the principles of interpreting a text in the scriptures is that it can't mean something today that it didn't mean to the original audience. We can't make it or manufacture meanings that don't have consistency with the intent of the author. And so here we have to do a little bit of detective work and actually put ourselves into the minds and the hearts of the first century readers and place ourselves into the shoes of those individuals who were a small group of believers in the city of Ephesus. And you remember from our teaching series earlier this year in the book of Acts, that in the first century, as the message of Jesus' saving work, the gospel was beginning to find its way all throughout the Mediterranean world, came across and came up against all kinds of cultural and linguistic, and all kinds of other barriers that the gospel began to cross. And so the, uh, culture, the gospel came to the city of Ephesus, and it began creating cultural and socioeconomic and political uh, things that didn't exist before. Now you have the rich and the poor in a society that was so highly stratosphered, gathering together for worship in one place. You have Greeks and non-Greeks gathering together in God's new family and celebrating communion and the Lord's Supper together. All of these socioeconomic and cultural barriers are getting broken down in God's new family. And so one of the primary messages of the book of Ephesians is, is uh, it's a letter written to try and help them understand how to live together in God's new family, in this new reality, as they learn to live together and follow the way of Jesus. And so here again, we have to ask ourselves, what in the world is verse 21 connected to? Well, the sentence actually begins back in verse 18. Verse 18 says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the, the theme of the whole sentence. You're not going to, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he goes on to talk about a whole bunch of things that will be true of the person's life that will be filled with the Holy Spirit. They won't get drunk with wine that'll ruin their lives. They'll sing. They'll make music in the Lord, music to the Lord in their hearts, and they'll give thanks to God in uh, the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and they will, because they're filled with the Holy Spirit, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then there's a period at the end of verse 21. And so the sentence and the understanding of this text in this verse, in verse 21, is that the instruction is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the evidences of what being filled with the Holy Spirit actually looks like carry right through into verse 21. And so the 
argument that's being made is that submission is a mark of the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. We're not even into a conversation about marriage yet. We're talking about being submitted to one another in God's family. That mutual submission to one another in the church and in God's family is a mark of the Spirit's work in a community. The intriguing application for those who are single is that in verse 21, we're not even talking about marriage. It's a mandate that we are receiving and an evidence of being filled with the Spirit that's a mandate for every person who says, I'm a part of God's family. I submit to Jesus' lordship. And we'll define what submission looks like in a few minutes. But for now, it's important to understand that my willingness to exercise humility and to put the needs of others ahead of my own needs is a mark of discipleship. It's a mark of growth in Christian community and a necessary mark of the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. Because this call to mutual submission is a call that applies to all Christians at all times in all places. It is not yet even applied to the context in which normally people jump to in thinking about the marriage relationship. The call to mutual submission is a call that applies to all Christians. Be filled with the Spirit, and if you are filled with the Spirit, then you will evidence that by being willing to be submissive to one another. One of the ways in which that gets worked out is a question of being willing to give things up for other people in the life of the community. What have you given up for other people around here lately? Have you given up comfort? Have you given up a made a financial sacrifice? Maybe you've given up something you thought that you were entitled to, a position of leadership or prestige or anything that could be construed as a sacrifice for the greater good of the family and the life of the church. What have you given up reverence for Christ and the advancement of God's family and his kingdom. Whenever we do that, if we give up our need and desire to be first, to be known, to be in charge of things, to be in front of stuff, it's an evidence of that we've accepted a call to mutual submission. And so this applies not only just to individuals, but to our church family as well. We could spend a lot more time here, but we need to keep moving through the text because there's a lot there. So you'll notice that verses 22 to 27 then are actually examples of, further expressions of examples, of something that we are all called to, to mutual submission. So remember now, we've put on our lens to try and think of what this means to be the listeners in the first century. And remember, this era in history, uh, marriage was not generally based on love and mutuality. In the first century, marriage was based on socioeconomics. The only responsibility that a husband had was to provide shelter and food and everything else that was provided was a bonus. The status of women was horrific. Women in general were treated as pieces of property that could be bought, sold, exchanged at any time, disposed of, had no rights in terms of legal status, and in so many other ways. And so along comes 
the Apostle Paul and writes that mutual submissiveness ought to be the dominating characteristic of a marriage relationship. Biblical scholar uh, Kyle Snodgrass, which um, his commentary I'm indebted to for much help on this, notes that the submission of wives to husbands and the love that husbands are commanded to give their wives are examples of this strong and free act of the will based on real love of the other person. And that this call that Paul put out here was incredibly radical. We hear the S word submission and we freak out because it sounds like subjugation and all kinds of other negative things in our minds. They heard the S word submission and freaked out because it sounded like in Jesus, women were being affirmed and their status was lifted up to a place of mutuality and equality with men. And they freaked out because that was culturally unheard of. And so one of the things for us to remember when we read this text is that these were, and they still are, profoundly positive words for women. There's a lot more that could be said about this as well, but we have to keep moving. So we've established a few things here in our conversation already. One is that this call to mutual submission applies to everyone who is a part of God's family because it's a pillar of personal and corporate discipleship. Secondly, that the cultural status of women in the first century was so poor that this was a radical call that began to break apart some of these cultural stereotypes that existed in male-female relationships. So in order to understand this a little bit more, we have to take, that was our first step back looking at the first century world. Our second step back is that we have to look at, ask the question, what does the whole Bible say about this theme of mutuality? just so that we're not looking at kind of one text and making it say things that we want it to say. But we're trying to get the stream of conversation, right? When you're texting with somebody, you get this whole history of the text messages and what the content and context has been. So it helps you kind of shape it out a little bit more. And so you need to do that when you come to a biblical passage that you're not quite sure what you should do with. Think, well, does the Bible say anything else about this particular topic that could help us? And one thing that we keep bringing up in this series on holy matrimony is that it's intriguing that whenever the biblical authors want to give us a picture of what's happening in marriage, they almost always go back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And Paul does this here in verse 31 of Ephesians chapter 5. The scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother, joins his wife, the two are united in one. This is a great mystery, but an illustration of the way that Christ and the church are one. And he's quoting here from the book of Genesis, to try and give us again an idea of an intended model of what he's communicating. And so one of the things that we see when we look back at Genesis as God's original architecture for male-female relationships is that God intended mutuality for men and for women. And he actually modeled this on a relationship that existed before time began, and that is the relationship that exists among the persons of the Trinity. See, part of the implications of being made in the image of God is that our human relationships are to model the level of respect and deference and humility and self-giving love that is ever present in the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
have a friend that um, pastors the Greek Orthodox Church here on 72nd Avenue, uh, Father Lawrence. And uh, Father Lawrence said to me, oh, Brad, we have a wonderful word for this in Greek Orthodox theology. I said, what is it? And he said, it's, it's perichoresis. Thank you, Father Lawrence. That does not help me very much. You'll have to explain that a little bit more. He says, well, you don't speak Latin? I'm like, no, I don't speak Latin or Greek, but I'm sure that you do, so I'd love you to help me. So, of course, he pulls out his iPhone because though he dresses in very black traditional Greek Orthodox robes, he's very hip and he has all Apple products all of the time. <laughs> and so he says to me, well, Brad, let me give you a little window into perichorsis. It's, it's a better way to understand it is the divine dance. It's, it's the way in which the members of the Trinity all relate to each other. Look into, into Philippians chapter 2. Though Jesus was equal with God, he did not consider equality something to be grasped, but he willfully self-sacrificed and came as a man to the earth. It's perichoresis, Brad. Do you see how the Father takes the lead and the Son comes to earth? And then the filling of the Spirit. It's like a circle dance where all the members take the lead at different points. And he gets anime and says, have you ever tried to dance where two people lead? Try to lead, it doesn't work, he says. We're in Starbucks. He's getting a little animated for a Starbucks conversation for me personally, but that's all right. I said, uh, no, I haven't tried that. He says, it work one takes the lead in the dance and the others follow and it becomes a wonderful and beautiful expression and we call it the divine dance and that too is how we relate to each other in male female relationships it's god intention and design for mutuality that we reflect the beautiful humble and eternal relationship of god where one leads and points to follow and the others follow suit This is the picture that God had in mind for us of human relationships. But we saw this leading into Easter in our Lent series in the gospel that when sin got into the world, it distorted that mutuality and resulted in very particular expressions of that in male-female relationships. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. The specific implications of the curse that are listed in Genesis 3, verse 16 apply to male-female relationships in that they're very specifically directed to male-female relationships. Genesis 3.16, the reference of the curse, is speaking to Eve and says, you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. The very specific result of sin And the distortion of that mutuality is the entrance into the world of domination and manipulation into human relationships. God's intention for mutuality was disrupted by sin. And there are specific temptations that exist for each gender, intriguingly, in this. The temptation for women is to desire to control through manipulation. And there's very specific negative implications for husbands or males. Inappropriate exercising of authority by seeking to rule over women. What God designed as a beautiful relationship of mutuality turned into an all-out war of the sexes using the tools of control, manipulation, and others in highly toxic ways. And these are not the only tools in our tool belt when we want our way, are they? 
But this gives us the opportunity to look in the mirror, as it were, and ask if, are we living out the relational DNA of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in our own relationships? Or have we accepted and begun to live under the good news of the relationships that we can have in Jesus because the gospel proclaims that we can break this cycle of domination and manipulation and in Christ, mutuality has been restored to us as a possibility. When we're filled with the Spirit, we can allow another person to lead in the dance and we can follow without losing our individuality or being fearful of having it crushed by another person. Your marriage can be wonderful and powerful and very positive place for God to reverse the effects of the curse because it's such a powerful and positive place for personal discipleship as we talked about three weeks ago. But you have to choose the path. If you, are a, if you have to choose to intentionally Make a choice to love and to trust, not to use manipulations beside the scenes maneuvering to get your spouse to do what you want them to do. If you're a husband, well, let's go there now because we have to take a third step back and ask ourselves, what is the implication for us in our day and in our time around the S word, the concept of submission? And here we find a surprising reality in the text, and that is that the majority of this instruction is actually directed towards husbands. And this is where we begin to actually see the full definition of mutuality and mutual submission working itself out. Because for too long, Ephesians 5, 22 and 23 has been read like a little snippet text message kind of a thing. Usually by husbands who are in an argument with their wives and in a pitiful attempt to pull rank or win, they say something like, no, I'm not taking the second week of July off and going visiting your family this summer, hon. That's the end of the discussion. I'm the head of this house and wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. It's biblical. I'm not going to visit my in-laws. You smirk, which makes me think some of you have thought this through a little bit already. And perhaps you've experienced it. But by linking our marriage relationship to the model of Christ's sacrificial love for us as his church, Paul takes that kind of headship off the table for good. The definition that Paul provides us for mutual submission is a focus not on privilege and dominance, but a focus on service and on sacrifice. Paul never suggests that wives are inferior or in any way ought to be thought of in the context of servants. The Greek word actually for submit doesn't even appear specifically in verse 22. It appears in verse 21 and then has to be inferred or carried into verse 22, which means what wives are doing in the marriage relationship is not unique. It's simply an extension of what everyone is doing in the church. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives as to husbands, it says. It's also intriguing to note that the text does not tell wives to obey their husbands. Headship does not mean that everything that the husband says goes. I can't even imagine what a disaster my home and family and marriage would be if every idea that came into my head was uncontested by Meg. But some Christians have been very guilty of interpreting 
this text to mean that a wife is to go through married life saying, whatever you think, dear. Submission and obedience are not linked in this text. They're not linked in any text on marriage in the New Testament, actually. They're always linked in our conversation about a relationship and submission to God as our leader for those whose lives are lived under his authority. But using this text to build a case for a power differential in marriage is inappropriate and theologically sloppy. Nowhere in this text does it give husbands a license to force submission. In fact, quite the opposite. Because Paul's very definition of headship comes back to his primary model and example for us, and that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul defines headship as having a responsibility to love, to give oneself, and to nurture, just as Christ did for you and for me. The Scripture says that God loved so much that he gave himself for us. He came to the earth, and the nature of his giving was to sacrifice himself, to be willing to suffer and to die on a cross, to pay the penalty for your sin and mine so that we could be adopted into his family. So it's here we can begin to think about moving into some of the implications and applications in this conversation in our life today. And the first thing that we need to understand very clearly from Ephesians chapter 5 is that the idea of mutual submission in our relationships, we can't work our way into it by simply trying harder. Nothing in this text is possible without a submissiveness to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. So if you're here today and you think, well, I want that kind of depth in my marriage. I want that kind of mutuality in my relationship. This text is describing a male and a female husband and a wife who have submitted their lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ and who therefore are joined at the deepest level possible, the spiritual level. And they're walking together in spiritual unity under the authority of Christ and being filled by the Holy Spirit. And so some of you have a family member who does not, that does not describe them and who does not know Jesus personally, is not filled with the Spirit. And so let's be honest. If that's the case, you can't love in this radical, life-giving, mutually submissive kind of way. It's challenging because it's not operating under the umbrella that Ephesians sets out for us as, as a willingness to have both parties submitted to the work of the Spirit. And maybe you're here today and you think, well, I've never submitted my life to the Spirit of God. I've never opened the door of my life and asked God to be in charge of my life. Well, maybe today is the day for you. This might be here, this might be why you're here today. Maybe you're not here today to hear anything about marriage in particular. Maybe you're here today to hear about God's deep and eternal love for you that he expressed by giving of himself. And in a few minutes, I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask you to respond if that's you today. And so if you're feeling like God is speaking to you about that issue today, that's the Holy Spirit and you need to know that today is your day. Today is a day of salvation for you. Today's the day when you too can begin to start living life under the power of the Spirit. For those who have been in a relationship with Jesus 
for some time and whose relationship, if you look at it and go, I don't know, it's pretty healthy, I guess, whatever that means. Let me encourage and challenge you as well. In our world, as well as in the world of the first century, when you start to live differently, people take note. The radical love and trust and mutuality that husbands and wives began to show each other in the first century caused no small amount of disturbance in the first century world. That's why Paul had to write this and give some clarity around how they should live together. And in fact, in Titus in particular, he has to say, listen, you need to live in an atmosphere in your home of mutual submission because it's getting, if you don't, it's actually creating a bad name for the gospel out there in your neighborhoods. And so you've got to watch out. And, and conduct yourselves in a spirit of love and gentleness towards one another. But when you do that, when you walk into a relationship with a spirit of mutual submission, it's so different and unique that it causes others to take notice that we have been with Jesus. And so if you're a person who has been a Christian for a while, and if you have a healthy relationship submitted to the lordship of Jesus and, and mutually submitting to each other, your healthy Christian relationship ought to have an apologetic dimension to it. A potential where other people look at it and say, that's different. The, the way in which your relationship functions, tell me more about that. I'm curious, why does your marriage work in the way that it does? And the very reason that these instructions are given so that we can live with wisdom and that Christ's name can be exalted in our homes and in our city. People ought to look at the relationships and the marriages that people have with each other that are Christians and say, it's not perfect, but there is something there that I'm missing. And again, this is not just applicable to marriage relationships. This applies to how we conduct ourselves as a church community. We're going to gather together in a couple of weeks on the 27th for our ministry meeting together. When we get together, people ought to say that those people know how to operate in their body life together as a community in mutual submission or harmony to one another. It ought to apply to how men married or single treat women, even those uh, that they, the, the men of Jericho. Let me speak to you guys for a minute. Um, if you're submitting your life to the lordship of the Holy Spirit, you've got to treat women with respect. Not just your wives, but all the women you come across, even those you encounter online. Men who live out a principle of submission and mutual submission don't objectify women in any way. They work for justice and dignity and peace and love in all aspects of male-female relationships. Speaking to a lot to men today, and that's okay. Next week's Mother's Day, so women, you know, we can, we can camp on some different things next weekend when we're together. But let me again emphasize that when it comes to mutual submission, this is a mutual project. And this means that both of us, as men and as women, reject and push away under the help and guidance of the Holy Spirit, self-centeredness, and we actively work for the good of those around us. See, this is where it's, it's deeper than just equality. Because equality is great, and equality is something that our society holds up as valuable. But it's just something entirely deeper. Because equality is usually achieved when a person works hard to protest and achieve their rights. 
And there's a time and a place for that. But in mutual submission, I'm loving and giving down and laying down my rights, which is why the context of a loving, Christ-honoring relationship is so important. Otherwise, the door is open for the potential of abuse being a doormat, which is not an appropriate expression of mutual submission. But rejecting self-centeredness has to move out of just a nice and interesting idea for us, out of our minds and our wills. It has to actually be demonstrated and lived out in the way that we walk as disciples or followers of Jesus. And so another question again for us is, what have you given up for another person lately? We often think about this in the season of Lent going into Easter, but the attitude that underpins the mutual submission call of the scriptures is one that's modeled for us by Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 or when he says to his disciples you've seen how the Gentiles do this whole thing how they exercise rulership and authority over each other not so with you the one who wants to be great the one who wants to lead in my kingdom they need to be the servant of all and so mutual submission is rooted in and grows out of the soil of deep and true humility. Well, the team is going to come and we're going to respond in song, which I think provides a perfect image for us to consider this topic. In their excellent book, Resonant Witness, Conversations Between Music and Theology, Authors Jeremy Begbie and Stephen Guthrie argue that singing together is in some ways the perfect example of mutual submission. The authors remind us that whenever we gather together to sing in a setting like this, we're actually practicing mutual submission, aren't we? We're submitting to synchronicity. We're no longer singing our own tunes we submit to a common tempo that the team sets for us. We submit to a unique melody and harmony and a common key and musical structures. And this reminds us helpfully that some of us, though we can view submission as a dirty word, when we actually submit musically to each other, it becomes a beautiful and melodious, resonant Thing that it cannot be if we choose not to engage in the process. As I choose to limit my freedoms to sing however I want, whatever I want, we actually grow in an expression of mutual submission. And we express something that is beautiful. But mutual submission in music actually also implies and necessitates genuine participation, doesn't it? We can't exercise mutual submission if you guys are the only ones singing. And so the authors write, musical submission and genuine participation is not and cannot be the silencing of the weaker by a dominant voice. The very chorus is a society whose life depends on the members contributing their voices. And so I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And as we pray together, we're going to respond by joining our hearts to God. And we're also going to respond by joining our voices to each other. So stand with me as I pray. And then we will sing.
Father, you have called us to a place that is certainly difficult and challenging. You have called us to a place of learning to submit to one another out of reverence for you. You've called us to a place where first and foremost we come to you and lay our lives before you and say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so I want to give anybody an opportunity that's here this morning that if you've never made that commitment and you want to say, you know what, today's the day. I want to surrender my heart to God. Just look up, make eye contact with me. Just stick your hand up. I'm going to come, we'll pray with you after. We'll begin to lead you in, into the life that Jesus promises and walk with you as a person of faith who's engaging for the first time in submittedness to Jesus. We want to say also, and God, that we desire as a community to be submitted to you, to surrender our lives to you, so that the outflow of that can be a different level of depth and complexity and resonance and beauty in the relationships that you call us to, not only in our marriages, but in every aspect of our lives. And so, Jesus, we willfully choose as the expression of our will and as the expression of our voice today to surrender to you and to each other as well. In the holy and precious name of your Son and of the Spirit who gives us the authority and the capacity to do these things, we pray. Amen.